So this has been a, a busy week for some of us, a busy weekend. It was the Dream Cruise this weekend. I'm uh, proud of our church. We had a tent on Woodward, and I, I saw people from our church running out into the middle of the road with bottles of water, uh, being a blessing to people driving along Woodward on the Dream Cruise. In fact, Deborah, I saw pictures of you. So, uh, and others, but I just, you're sitting in the front row, so you get embarrassed today, but uh, thank you so much. It, you know, it's a vulnerable act, isn't it, to run out into the middle of the street, risking your life, um, but also kind of vulnerable to be that direct in offering a blessing, and that's, I, I'm pretty enthused about that. When I um, set up this sermon series with the pastor's Vulnerability is something that I called for from them as each of them shared a story that, that shaped them in their ministry. I, we talked about, I think the list of things that I was worried about, I said word count, you know, don't go on too long. Uh, you know, let's hear something about the scripture or else it's not a sermon. Uh, but be vulnerable. Uh, and so I, in the interest of following my own advice, I seek to do that today. I won't take that too far, though. See, my sermon is called Sparkle Pants, and my fellow colleagues, my pastors, left this on my desk this morning. There is no way I'm getting that vulnerable with this congregation as much as I love you. So here you go, Angela. (laughs) Let us pray. Shatter the silence, mighty God, with your glad and glorious greetings. Banish all our fears. Give us faith in Jesus Christ, the risen Lord. If there is anything said from this pulpit that is against your will, let it come to naught and do no harm. But if there is anything said from this pulpit that is according to your will, let it be heard as if sung by the voice of angels, that hearing we might believe and believing obey. Amen. How could they love me? How could they love me? We build facades because of that question. We feel the need to be something that we're not because of that question. We hold back from crying, or we smile only politely, we post only the most perfect selfies, we refrain from dancing, we share only appropriately, because if I don't fit into their box, if I don't turn out to be exactly what they expected me to be, how could they love me? We are so afraid of being judged. I'm afraid of being judged right now. I judge every preacher. I wish I didn't. We are so afraid of being judged. How could they love me? I appreciate Brene Brown's advice on relationships 
she talks about this experience of feeling judged and she says, when you feel judged, go to the person that you feel is judging you and say to them, the story that I'm making up is, and then give them your version of the events. The story that I'm making up is. So she tells of this time where she used this technique. She was swimming in a lake with her husband, Steve, and she made a romantic advance to Steve, and he pulled away from her, and he made, she made another romantic advance towards Steve, and he pulled away, and then one more time, and he pulled away, and so finally she stopped and she said, Steve, I'm feeling hurt. The story that I'm making up is that you see me in this lake with you and you think, oh man, she's getting old. Now after a little while, Steve responded and he told her, no, I was having a panic attack the entire time we were in a lake. See, the night before, I had a dream that we were in a boat accident and I was not able to save us. And so after further conversation, it became clear that both Brene and Steve were stuck in shame stories. Brene was stuck in a shame story where she wasn't fit enough or pretty enough for Steve. And Steve was stuck in a shame story that he was not capable enough or strong enough for Brene. So try this the next time that you're feeling judged. The story that I'm making up is, try that with a spouse, with a friend. Listen, the story I'm making up, try it with yourself. Try that with yourself. The story that I'm making up about you, Nate Phillips, is that you are nothing. You come from nothing. One day you will die and your life will have meant nothing. And you have a lot of people fooled about that. How could they love you? My sense is that many of us are stuck in these kind of shame stories. These stories that we've made up about ourselves. In the interest of being vulnerable and telling you the truth about the stories that have shaped me, we've done this all summer. We've shared the stories that have shaped us. And we've told many of them positive stories. But I have to tell you, this is something that I struggle with. And this shame story is a story that has shaped me perhaps more than any other. I'm really good at pretending it, it doesn't shape me. Maybe you are really good at it too. Maybe you are really good at it too. Because you all seem like you have your lives together. You really do. I was told in my early 20s to go and visit Princeton Theological Seminary, the finest theological seminary in the land. 
And I was told this by my mentor, and he said, I will pay for your trip. And so my wife, Ari, who was all of 22 years old, and my six-week-old daughter, Grace, we got in a car, and we drove to Princeton, New Jersey, the nine or ten hours from Maine. And we toured the campus, and I remember wearing this frumpy old suit and pushing our six-week-old daughter around in a stroller that we purchased from Walmart and being very self-conscious because it was this beautiful campus and all of these brilliant people walking around with books under their arms and none of them had a stroller with a little baby in it. And the story that I was making up was that all of them came from money and they had well-adjusted parents and they had these immaculate faith stories. How could they love me there? But they did somehow and those were three of the best years of my life. I bet you couldn't tell. And I wanted that for others. And so at the end of that time in seminary, I began looking for my first call. And I found this church, Red Clay Creek Presbyterian Church in Wilmington, Delaware. And it was a 1,000-member church, and they were building a $4 million multipurpose center. They had this amazing lead pastor and they needed an associate pastor for youth and mission. And I went to my wife and I said, imagine if we could end up there. But the story that I was making up about myself was that they would see right through me. That they would know right away I'd never walked into a church of that size. That they would see I wasn't capable and that I would fail. How could they love me there? They did, though. And somehow, in those 11 years, that changed my life, and I still wanted that for others. To know that they could be loved. Now, 11 years into my ministry at that church, I received a call from a member of the pastor nominating committee at Kirk in the Hills in Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. And the person on the other end of the phone said, we received your name from one of our references and we wonder if you take a look at our church. And I said, well, what's the name of your church? And she said, Kirk in the Hills, Bloomfield Hills, Michigan. And I said, well, I've never heard of that church. <laughs> East Coast bias. And she said, look at it online. And so I clicked it. And do you know what I saw? That. <laughs> and all of those feelings, right? All of those questions about myself, the stories that I make up about my own value, came right back up to the surface. And do you know what I asked? How could they love me there? And I wonder if others ask that about church, about this church, 
about their relationships with family when they meet their in-laws for the first time. Maybe they come from something. I wonder if people are asking that in the same way I ask it. Because it's, it's a painful thing, right? It, to have that be the story that shapes you. And as a pastor, I don't want that for you. I don't want that to be a determinant in your life, but I'm guessing that it is. Because it always has been. I mean, Peter didn't want that for his community either, for his congregation either, and yet they were facing the same reality in the first century. And you know that because of the way that he writes his letter to the congregation. Today, Pastor Chris wrote, read from 1 Peter. First and 2 Peter are written not like Paul wrote to Philippi or Paul wrote to Ephesus and we have Philippians and Ephesians. Peter wrote to the church at large. This is meant for everyone. There are a few letters like that in the New Testament. First and 2 Peter, Jude, Hebrews, right? So this is meant for everyone. And it is almost as if Peter knew this, this message that he had would, would transcend time and space. But in his time, they needed to hear the message that he had because it was a very difficult time for Christians. See, in the year 64, do you know what happened? There was a great fire in Rome. And the emperor of that time, whose name was Nero, what was he doing while the city burned? Fiddling, right. But he blamed the fire on these nefarious Christians. We actually read about the Christians in some of the Roman history because of this fire. They get blamed for this. They become the scapegoats for this great tragedy in the greatest city on the planet. And so their scapegoats and their existence matters little more than rats. And so the story that they're making up about themselves in the first century is an echo of the story that Nero is, is telling about them. And that is that they were of no value. And that they were to be shaped by a story of shame. And so you can see why Peter is so passionate about confronting this head on. Do you hear what he says? Imagine what it was like for them to read this letter with all of what I've just said in mind. He says, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you might declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. What must that have been like for those people to read? See, I believe we continue to need Peters in our lives. We need people that will confront the stories that we're making up about ourselves. And remind us that you are not your worst idea, you are not your deepest regret, and you are not as small as your past would have you believe that you are. You are a chosen people. 
a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's own people, called to praise the one that brought you out of darkness and into this marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are a people of God. You can be loved. Oh, you can be loved. And I love how Peter uses these precise words in his letter because they take us back to the time of Exodus. See, there was this moment between the exodus from Egypt, this exodus from lives of slavery in Egypt, there's this moment between that and when they received the law at Mount Sinai. There are about six, five or six chapters in between those two major events. And right there, smack dab in the middle of those two big events, in this time of great wandering and wandering, in this time where they have nothing to anchor them but this shame story of being slaves in Egypt, God says something to them in Exodus chapter 19, verse 6, and he says, You shall be for me a priestly kingdom and a holy nation. And so when Peter writes that in the letter, he is echoing back what they've been hearing since the time of Exodus. He knows they need to hear it again then, and I believe we need to hear it again now. The people of God are still asking the question, how could they love me? How could he, how could God love me? And as I think of the answer to that question, I'm reminded of a Christmas present that we got for my daughter Grace when she was four years old. Sparkle pants. That's what she called them. And she asked for them by name. Sparkle pants. And when she opened them up on Christmas morning, she held them in her hands and she wanted to wear them right then. And we said no. Because that's what you do on Christmas morning when you're a parent. You kill their joy. No, I said no, because you've got to run them through the wash first, right? And so I did. I put them in the wash. But I didn't run them through by themselves. I put them in the wash with all my clothes. And more importantly, with my wife's clothes. I didn't notice the effect that the sparkle pants had on this load of laundry until I put on my team t-shirt for my volleyball team. And I can assure you that all of my teammates noticed it as well and they let me know that they noticed it. There was something new about this plain red t-shirt and all the other clothes in the load. Right? There was something new. What was new? It sparkled. It shimmered. And that's all you could see was this new shimmer. Somehow, and I believe it's by the power of the Holy Spirit, we have been put in the wash with one another 
as a community of faith. We come from many places and we bring all kinds of different stories. We are burdened in different ways by the stories that have shaped us, the stories we make up about ourselves, stories that make us wonder, how could they love me? It's the same question that I was asking on that porch in Avondale, Pennsylvania when I saw that. But this is the good news. And it was good news for me on that day. It was good news for Peter's congregation in the first century. It was good news for the Exodus community. And it's good news for all of us. And that is that God did not put us in the wash alone. That God put Jesus in the wash with us. He got into the wash with us. With the stains that we have and the mess that we are. And somewhere in that cycle... There was something about Jesus that came off and stuck to us. And now, that's all that God can see. That is where we have value. Imagine if our value came from money. How would our value change if we lost our money or if we gave it away? How do we value those that do not have money if our value came from money? Imagine if our value came from the way that we look like some would have us believe. How would our value change if our looks changed? How do we value someone that has a different look? Imagine if our value came from the way that we think, as some would have us believe. Well, how would our value change if we changed our mind? Or if we began to forget? And how do we value those that think differently than we do? But imagine if we really believed that our value came from the way that God has loved us and how Jesus got into the wash with us, got into this wash with us, well, then our value never changes. That's the gospel. The value that you have doesn't change. And you don't have to make up stories about others or about yourself because you are caught up in the story of the one who made us. How could they love you? He loves you. How could they not? Amen. Amen.